Welcome to Dear Culture, the podcast that gives you news you can trust for the culture. I'm your co-host, Jaren Keith Gaynor, Managing Editor at The Grio. And I'm your co-host, Shauna Pinnock, Social Media Director at The Grio. And this week we're asking, Dear Culture, how do we reject the anti-Blackness from within? But before we get into the show, G, what is on your mind this week? So I'm sure everyone this week saw the Met Gala and there were many fashions uh, at the Met Gala this year. Some I loved. Um, And one that really stood out to me was uh, Representative Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. She wore uh, this dress that said tax the rich. Um, And this has been a very big topic this week because uh, Democrats in the House released their proposal um, to raise uh, about $2 million in uh, taxes, $2 trillion in taxes, I should say. Uh, So as we know, uh, President Trump, uh, he passed the 2017 uh, tax cuts. And now that Democrats are in control, uh, their mission is to raise uh, $3.5 trillion um, in the reconciliation bill. Um, And this money would be used to address very important things like climate change. We've been talking about climate change a lot uh, here at the Grio, especially. Uh, we've been seeing the effects of hurricanes. Um, and so this money will go toward climate change. It will go toward uh, social programs. We've seen uh, some of the early uh, benefits of the child tax credit. And so the Biden administration wants to uh, pay for this by raising taxes on the rich. Now, I am not a, a tax expert. But I have been uh, following this a bit and it's very uh, convoluted. But just to give you guys a breakdown of what Democrats are attempting to do, and they're trying to raise taxes on people, individuals who make over $400,000 and for couples, $450,000. People feel like raising taxes on $400,000 is not the the goal, is not the solution to uh, improving the, uh, the, the income inequality in this country, uh, to end poverty, to end homelessness. And uh, some people say that it needs to go further. And you have some Democrats, progressives like AOC, who feel like there should be, they should be taxed more, that we should be taxing uh, the super rich and not just those who are, you know, I would say lowly rich, if, if that if is even a real term. But the problem with this new plan that the Democrats have released so far is that it doesn't tax stocks and bonds uh, and capital gains. So there's income that can be taxed, but then there's money that's sitting in, in accounts uh, that the super rich have been able to find loopholes and not be taxed. People like Jeff Bezos, he is worth $200 billion. And Jeff Bezos, his income at Amazon is $81,000. So imagine someone who's worth $200 billion being taxed for his $81,000 and his for his salary at Amazon, but he continues to make billions and billions of dollars uh, in the stock market. And so there is a lot that it has to come to the table. Some moderate Democrats are against going after the super rich. They feel like uh, they're scared. They're scared politically. If you are a representative in a state that is a bit red or even purple, um, you have your constituents to answer to. And so politics is at play in this in this whole tax code battle. And I know that some people feel like AOC going to the Met Gala wearing a tax the rich uh, dress is bad optics because it's a gala that is worth $30,000 a plate. Uh, We don't know if she paid for 
that uh, entrance fee. Um, but I will say that AOC has consistently said that, you know, she wants to in- increase the taxes on the rich. Uh, she has pointed out in previous interviews that there was once a time where rich people were taxed as much as 70 percent. And right now they're proposing that they are taxed 39, I think 39.5 percent of their income. So there's a lot of money that I just feel like is not being touched in this whole tax code plan. And the reality is that for black and brown people, for people who are working class, for people who don't make $400,000 or more who are not millionaires, um, it seems incredibly unfair that during the pandemic, we saw millionaires and billionaires make money. And we're seeing people being evicted from their homes and can't can't live um, the, the American dream. And so pay attention to what's happening in Washington, like I always say, uh, because if you're not paying attention, uh, the politicians are going to do what they want to do anyway behind your back. Uh, so it's really important that Black voters especially pay attention to what's happening um, because it's, it's impacting our communities especially. Um, as a person who has voted for AOC and who will continue to vote for AOC, I think for me, the I find it, it it's 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 all about the optics at the end of the day. You know what I mean? And I think regard people don't care about facts. So whether or not if she paid for a plate, she didn't. You know, but whether or not if she paid for a plate, if, if she was in the she was at the Met Gala and she was actually lobbying, you know, some of these rich people, that doesn't really matter. It's a matter of the fact that like you went to this very hoity-toity event to, with a message but you're still there. You know what I mean? Like it, it feels kind of gross and it feels kind of tone deaf. Um, but, you know, let's talk about more about tone deaf people, shall we, Jaren? Because, uh, yeah, um, you know, on this show before I have already said, I, I tend to steer clear of this woman and her drama, mainly because her fans are rabid. They are, they are weird and they're crazy. Um, <laughs> Are you talking about the barbs? Oh, we're talking about the barbs here. All right. Talking about the barbs. Uh Um, So this week, Nicki Minaj, uh, she was conspicuously absent from the VMAs. You know, she had now announced that she wasn't going to be at the VMAs. She wasn't going to be at the Met Gala. And so that led to a lot of speculation of, well, what's going on? Um, Because the VMAs and the Met Gala both required all attendees to be fully vaccinated. Nicki took to her Twitter, you know, uh, her weapon of choice and decided that she, well, first off, she was going to let folks know that she did in fact contract COVID. I guess she was doing a music video, ended up catching the Rona somehow, et cetera, et cetera. But here's where it takes a fun little turn. Nikki tweeted, they want you to get vaccinated for the Met. If I get vaccinated, it won't for the, I'm guessing she means won't, it won't be, it won't for the Met. It'll be once I feel like I've done enough research. I'm working on that now. In the meantime, my loves, be safe. Wear the mask with two strings that grips your head and face, not the loose one. Prayer hand emojis, heart emoji. Now, had it just been this tweet, I would have nothing to say about Nicholas. I swear I wouldn't. I would just be like, all right, you know what? Fine. That's cool, girl. Whatever. But no, Nikki then took <laughs> to her Twitter yet again to tweet. My cousin in Trinidad won't get the vaccine because his friend got it and became impotent. His testicles became swollen. His friend was weeks away from getting married. Now the girl called off the wedding. So just pray on it and make sure you're comfortable with your decision. Not bullied. Nicholas. (laughs) Nikki, 
I want to be very, very clear when I say, especially as it relates to black and brown people, I understand the hesitancy. I understand the skepticism around the vaccine. We would be fools to think otherwise. Absolutely. Even though, let's be very clear, especially at the onset of the vaccine being handed out, there were definitely white people sneaking into black neighborhoods to try and get the little shot in the arm. I think that was enough for me, but fine. For you, hesitancy is fine. Misinformation is where I take umbrage. Misinformation and using your using your your platform in a irresponsible way, your platform of millions, your platform of many youthful people, your platform of many people who unfortunately don't read, who don't read, who don't want to be informed. The I'm going to do my more my my own research crew to me typically means I'm going to look for videos and memes and Facebook posts and YouTube, you know, content that basically agrees with the preconceived notions, negative notions that I have anyway, that are already based in non-factual anything that has nothing to do with science. You telling me this anecdotal story about your cousin's friend's balls, girl, 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 you sound stupid. You sound dumb. And what really kind of pissed me off, well, there was two things. One, so uh, earlier today, she said, um, she jumped back on and she's like, oh, how her cousin, you know, went and texted her about this tweet. And she's like, oh, if, if he found out because of the news, it was supposed to be a secret. Girl, why are you why are you gaslighting and why are you playing in our faces? Actually, I do know that, but I'm gonna get to that in a second. Now, let me backtrack. Let's pull over and part. So Joanne Reed, who is a the Grio alum, um, who is pretty amazing. She's an MSNBC television host. She has her own show, The Readout. Joy took to her platform to her own platform and basically said, you know, coming, in my opinion, with love and respect to Nikki and saying, I'm I'm disappointed in you as a fan, as a as someone who enjoys your music, who enjoys your artistry, for you to use your platform in such a way that is so incredibly harmful. And you're essentially you're encouraging people in our marginalized community, you're encouraging people who are already so much at risk, who are dying at astronomical numbers, you're encouraging our folks to not get vaccinated. And and this is the thing. Everyone likes to sit here and play devil's advocate. Let's be very clear. The devil does, does, has never needed an advocate. He could do his work just by himself. Just because she did not say don't get vaccinated means nothing. You're sitting here and you're splitting hairs. Don't play with me. You telling me about this cousin's friend's balls who had to call off a wedding, which let's be very clear, sweetie. That was not the COVID vaccine. That was an STD. That was an untreated STD. That was gonorrhea. Really, Nikki? Really? Like the COVID-19 vaccine where millions of people have gotten vaccinated do you mean to tell me that at no point in time, if swollen balls were <laughs> were a, a, a valid side effect, you don't think that would have blown up? You don't think the Republicans would have jumped on it? Which, let's be clear, Tucker Carlson certainly jumped on it. He was out here reading your tweets, reading your tweets on his punk. You see, I was about to cuss. Reading his tweets on his show, reading your tweets on his show. You don't think that 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 would have been something already discussed, that that would have been something already acknowledged, Nicholas, really? 
is this part of your research, Nicholas, this anecdotal story that really, and quite frankly, I don't believe it's true, but this, this, this is what we're supposed to believe as actual factual ma'am. Okay. Now joy said, you know, joy again, came, came at her with respect and Nikki again, took to her Twitter and tweeted, this is what happens when you're so thirsty to down another black woman by the request of the white man. I, let's pull over. I, I believe she doesn't know who Joanne Reed is. And I believe that she doesn't know that joy has her own show. And honestly, that tells me all that I need to know about Nikki. Nikki does not watch the news. Okay. Nikki, <laughs> Nikki does not read, but cool. Which is why she's spreading misinformation on social media. Period. So then she goes that you didn't bother to read all my tweets. I read them all, Nikki. Let me pull over again. I read them all, Nikki. Still sounds stupid. And then she says, uh, she's quoting Joy here. She says, my God, sister, do better. Imagine getting your dumb ass on TV a minute after a tweet to spread a false narrative about a black woman. Then she tweeted another one that says the two white men sitting there nodding their heads because this Uncle Tamiana doing the work, child. How sad. Nick. Nick. First of all, I'm, I, you know what? I'm, I'm not even going to deign to give you any kind of, any kind of validity um, on, on calling Joanne Reed, Uncle Tamiana or anything of that nature. I'm not even going to give you that because clearly you just, you don't know, you're misinformed. But this is what I find funny. You want to talk about how Joy is on some anti-Black and anti-woman stuff when, I'm sorry, Aren't you weren't weren't you just fine with your husband raping a woman and you were out here trying to silence her with money and trying to silence her with your barbs and trying to silence her with your with your blog paying and payments and all this other stuff? Allegedly, allegedly. all alleged, alleged, allegedly. <clears throat> weren't you? But I mean, you know, allegedly, weren't you all doing that? So who are you to talk about anything anti-woman? Who are you to talk about anything about protecting blackness when? I'm sorry. Weren't you also allegedly playing for your brother's, uh, your 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 convicted pedophile brother's, um, you know, court case, as you were also allegedly trying to bribe the mother of a little black child for not testifying against your 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 predator brother? Okay, and this is what I mean when I say gaslighting, right? Like Nikki loves to 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 divert. She likes to. Uh, let me let me point and shoot somewhere else, anywhere else. Girl, we're still paying attention to the fact that your husband just pled guilty to the fact that he has to go, that he failed to register as a sex offender. Worry about the fact that your husband can't be within 100 yards of a school and stop sitting here and worried about uh, your, your friend's cousin's balls. It, it's, it's, it, is the, it is the utter lack of accountability it is, again, you can be scared. You can be hesitant. All of those things. I completely understand that. You have a responsibility to use your platform in a way that is beneficial to the masses because that is what you signed up for. You could have kept that in the drafts, period. But, you know, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Let's talk about. <laughs> I'll, I'll, just, I'll just add that. Right. I agree that Nikki used her platform irresponsibly. But what bothered me the most was her reaction to Joy Reid, because in your, to your point, Shauna, Joy Reid came with love. She said, as a fan, I am disappointed in you. And that clearly triggered Nikki to go on this very personal attack against 
another black woman. So you're, you're, you're accusing her of something, but you're doing the very same thing to, to joy. And, you know, it really bothers me that I see it really as a misunderstanding. I think that has she just received it for what it was and not jumped to not think the worst of joy. I think that's the thing that we do worst to each other in our community. We think the worst of each other. And she assumed that joy has some type of conspiracy, has some type of agenda to attack her, to tear her down. And that's not the case. We, we should all be looking out for each other because this pandemic is impacting our communities more. And that is where joy was coming from. And so to Nikki, I would say, put the phone down and just listen yeah. before you or, speak. or just go to queen radio and play music and leave the rest of us alone but anyway let's get into today's show uh <laughs> what does it mean to feel like a prisoner in your own body to not love the body you're in in the context of anti-blackness and internalized white supremacy while we as a culture publicly project messages of pro-blackness and self-love, the truth is that the journey of unpacking and discarding the influences of white supremacy and anti-blackness is one that is a bit complicated and takes meaningful self-work, reflection, and time. From anti-fatness to anti-woman and even anti-queerness, there are several ways in which we engage in both in external and internal threats to our community. Let's get into it. OG, to, you know, let's jumpstart this conversation. What do you think are some of the examples in the culture of like internalized oppression? Well, the obvious um, examples are, you know, black people who support policies that are anti-black. Um, and we see a lot of that. We see the Candace Owens of the world. And so that's always in our face. And we often uh, can point the finger at people because it is more obvious. But I think there are also other not so obvious ways that we that we internalize white supremacy. And so at first I want to like kind of just park the car and, you know, acknowledge that when I think about white supremacy, we, we have to acknowledge what that is. And that's a hierarchy and it's a hierarchy based on race. But the, the system of white supremacy is not just about whiteness. It's about patriarchy. You know, it's a it's about uh, power, capitalism. And so when we embrace things that are white, patriarchal, capitalistic, um, in a way in which we put people down because they don't fit certain ideals, uh, that is, to me, internalized anti-Blackness. And I've experienced anti-Blackness in my life, even when I didn't even recognize it as that. And, you know, this is a show where we, uh, we are talking to the culture and we, me and you, Shauna, we are very open and honest about our lives and our experiences. And for me, you know, the, the, mo the most glaring example of anti-Blackness in my life has been my issue of colorism. Uh, we often bring up colorism in general, but I don't think we really have truthful conversations about what that really looks like. And for me, I always had, most of my friends were lighter skinned than me. And I'm not sure at what age I realized that I felt like I was treated differently or seen differently because I wasn't their complexion, but it, that's how I felt. And I remember I was swimming, swimming in my grandparents' pool. I got like a really bad sunburn and my skin to this very day is very discolored in certain areas of my body. And my back had like a lot of discoloration and a, a dermatologist had prescribed this like um, really strong um, cream. It was essentially like a, a, the equivalent to like a, a bleaching cream. 
And I was supposed to be using it on my back and I was using it on my face. And I had this goal that if I use it on my face, then I'll look lighter. Um, and I was probably around 11, 12 years old at this time. And then throughout my teen years, I just remember uh, not feeling uh, as desirable as other guys. And even within the gay community, the black gay community, especially, um, I still I see the ways in which uh, my light skinned friends, for example, uh, get more attention. I, I've gone to bars, literally, and a guy is all up in my friend's face. And then when my friend rejects them, then I'm the I'm the I'm the second, you know, the second choice It's like, oh, hey, I didn't see you over there. Uh, let me get your number. And I'm like, no, you didn't pay me any mind before. And, you know, colorism is something that's a very sensitive topic in our community because we have family who are of different hues. And so I know for me, speaking about it has always been uncomfortable because I didn't want my loved ones to feel like I look at them in a negative light. It's really about how I feel about myself. And I think that we internalize white supremacy in so many different ways, like uh, how we value each other based on our skin color. And the truth is that being Black in America is hard. Being a dark-skinned Black person is even harder, especially you know when you are already um, absorbing uh, so much of the world about your identity and where you fit and where you don't fit. Um, so that's been something that's really been difficult for me. But anti-Blackness can show up in so many other different ways. It can be the way that I know when I go to, I hate uh, really bad customer service. And I've noticed if I go to, uh, it could be a restaurant, for example, or, or, or maybe like a, even a grocery store. And the way that a, a Black cashier will treat me versus a white customer, it's very different. You know, the, the attitude is different. It's like, why are you why, why am I being uh, attacked with all this energy? I'm a customer. I'm a patron just like any other person. Uh, you, I noticed that when there's a, a white customer uh, and, there's a, and there's a person of color, particularly a black person, you know, their voice changes. You know, they, they, they're a little bit more nicer. They're a little bit more understanding. And I think that we should be mindful of how we, how we show up in certain spaces because sometimes we, are, we do treat white people differently. And we, we look at each other as, as the enemy or, you know, or as competition, uh, any, anything along those realms, I would consider that to be anti-black, you know, to be anti-black is to be, to be anti-black is to be anti-liberation. And so anything that looks like, uh, that is the opposite of liberation for black and brown folk to me is, um, is you internalizing your own, uh, white supremacy within. And so, you know, what's funny is I think, um, and we kind of touched on this at the top of the episode of, uh, you know, there's so many, there's so much intersectionality as it is, as it relates to, as it relates to anti-blackness and how it really can go into, you know, anti, anti-woman and anti-fatness, all of these things. So a perfect example would be for me, the story of Makia Bryant, this young, I believe she was 15, 16 uh, year old girl who was in foster care, pulled out a knife because she was being attacked by seemingly some grown women who were coming after her. She pulls out a knife to essentially defend herself. The police come, fires, I believe, three or four shots into Makia's back. And I remember reading the comments on the Grio, on, on the Shade Room, Baller Alert, all of these different blogs and, and CNN even. And so many Black people who all of a sudden were, find, were twisting and turning and finding ways 
for themselves to defend what essentially is anti-Blackness. To me, there is absolutely an opportunity for police officers because I've seen it. We've seen police officers take down white men with axes in their hands. We've seen police officers take down with no with no incident. No one's harmed. No one's hurt. We've seen police take down white people, white men with guns and firearms and all of these things. But here goes this this little girl with a, a, the equivalent of, of a steak knife trying to defend herself. And there was just no time. And look, she was about to stab someone else and all of these things. And the comments of, yeah, but you like, do you see how big she is? Like, would you want some 200 pound blah, blah, blah? What does that? She was a child, you know? And I, I found it so frustrating. And it's interesting to see all of those, all of that intersection of, how you don't even realize that you're you're touting anti-black rhetoric right now. You don't even realize that if I were to go to Fox News, that's what these that's what they are saying. And y'all know who they are. I think for me too, and, and I'm so glad that you brought up being a kid and being being two chocolate babies <laughs> growing up, especially here in New York, you hear a lot of really terrible things. I can't tell you. Uh, how many times I've heard, oh, you're pretty for a dark skinned girl or uh, even in terms of my dating life, it has been either I've felt as though I was being chosen by light skinned men because they were really because I had some I had the melanin. I had something that they, they did not uh, There have been dark skinned men that I've dated who yikes, have specifically told me that the reason why they were attracted to me is because essentially we were going to like rebel against white people for <laughs> by being two dark skinned people together. And really all I think of is it takes me back to my childhood where a family friend <clears throat> pretty much made the comment. It was a tar baby comment, essentially. And I remember being five or six years old and having my mother, she made me a bubble bath. It was great. And it was wonderful. And me sneaking to pour in bleach into my bath water in an effort to lighten my skin. Like do you, a five and a six year old understands that my dark skin, this, this thing that just, it it's, it's me, you know, that this, this dark skin of mine is ugly to other people and I need to figure out a way to lighten it. I, I've talked about my grandmother a number of times on this show. I love my gram. She is, she is amazing. But unfortunately, uh, as a Jamaican immigrant to the United States, she has a lot a lot of internalized white supremacy and respectability politics and all of that too. And by that, I mean, my grandmother, I've broken my grandmother's heart because I have locks. I have, <laughs> I have broken my grandmother's heart because I remember as a kid and I would go to Jamaica with my dad and I would come back and we would go visit my grandmother. And her first, first statement was always like, look at how black you are. Like it was an insult. And even now, I think she's gotten better as she's gotten older. My niece and my nephews, their mother is Puerto Rican. And my grandmother made a comment um, a couple years ago saying something about like how two of my, my, my niece and, and one of my nephews who very much so look like their mother. 
and they have a little looser curl pattern and all of these other things. And my grandmother retorted, of, you know, like, look at how they got the good hair and the younger one, he, he his hair isn't as good as theirs. Graham, <laughs> you know, and, and explaining to her just how har- harmful and hurtful that is, especially for my youngest nephew, who he does, he, he looks like the blackest one of the group. Like he, you can tell he's not, he don't look mixed with nothing. That looks like straight Negro. And that is it. And I'm like, I, I'm not, I'm not okay with this little boy growing up thinking that his dark skin and the hair that grows out of his head, that beautiful bushy head of his is somehow wrong or ugly or, or anything like that. And for that to come internally, for that to come from your own family is gross. And it's, and it's, it, it hurts. Um, I'm trying not to choke up a little bit here because it's, it's really bringing up a lot of old trauma. Uh, and it's so crazy because I had, it wasn't until I got to Spelman College that I had to acknowledge how much, that I had to acknowledge how much internalized white supremacy that I was just keeping in, right? And it comes, and it came from, not just from white people, but it came from my, my grandmother too. So case in point, if you were to look at my dating history, about 90 to 92% of my dating history has predominantly been, been very, very, very light, bright black men. I mean, just bright. <laughs> and it was always, I never wanted to admit it, but in the back of my head, it was always because if I had a, a daughter with this man, at least I know my daughter wasn't going to have as dark of a skin tone as I did. And she wouldn't have to hear the terrible things that people say about dark skinned girls and, you know, and, and all of those things. She's already going to be a black woman. She already has the deck stacked against her. I don't need her to be a dark skinned black woman. Do you know how hard, like how hateful that is? How much in like, what? <laughs> it's, it's, it's nuts. Mm. Uh, and even <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to take a, a very, I got to I got to I got to go ahead and, and, and pull over in part because this this is actually getting a little bit emotional for me. So we're going to we're going to lighten this up a little bit. I'm going to give you some levity. Here's another example of white supremacy. <laughs> I cannot for the life of me take a single shower, bath, nothing without thinking of white people. Now, I'll explain why. <laughs> because every couple of years, just recently this year, just a month, maybe a few weeks ago, white people love to, to get up on, on Twitter and Facebook and all of these public platforms and let us know how filthy they are, right? So <laughs> just let us know how, just how filthy. So I literally cannot get in the shower and wash my legs and like lift my foot up to scrub, like to scrub the bottom of my feet because my first thought is, damn, white people don't do this. They just let the water just drip out. Like, what? You're hoping that the soap comes from the top of your head. Like, here goes your, your shampoo. And it's just, it's here we are, the top of my body. And the soap is just going to come. What? You are not a car. And this is not a car wash. And even then, they get the tires, too. What is wrong with y'all? Like, huh, what about you, G? <laughs> that is hilarious. But it's true. Like, I mean, I wouldn't think about uh, anti-blackness about when you shower, but it makes so much sense. You know, so much of what white people do and don't do, uh, it trickles down to how we are as a society. And we feel like 
I can't do this because, you know, it, we, we become so shameful of doing things that, that are just not, that come naturally to us, like being really well bathed. Don't even, don't even want to eat chicken in public. I, I just, what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't eat chicken, but when I did, I used to tear some chicken up. Um, but, but to your point, Shauna, I really got, I too got emotional when you were sharing, um, your personal story, because I think that your story is like my story and my story is like so many other people's stories in our community. And we just don't create the space to allow us to express that because we fear being judged. Um, I had this really bad breakup. I don't even know if I can call it a breakup because it was a situationship and not really a relationship, uh, but it was in my early 20s and uh, it took me years to get over this bad breakup because this guy just wouldn't want, he just wouldn't completely choose me. You know, it was like I was good enough to have sex with. I was good enough to go out and have a good time with. Uh, but ultimately what I wanted, which was a, re- a actual committed relationship, he just could not provide that. And I struggled to figure out why I couldn't let him go. It wasn't the first breakup in my life. He wasn't like, you know, the most, um, he wasn't like, you know, the second coming of Jesus Christ. (laughs) He was attractive, but like, I mean, it was like, he had this hold on me. And it actually took me like years after that, going through therapy um, in recent years, realizing that my attachment to this man that I couldn't get over with was because he was light-skinned. And because the idea that this attractive light-skinned man wanted me in, in whatever way, I was willing to uh, accept whatever he was able to offer me uh, because it made me feel valued. And I put so much value in how he looked, even though, even if it wasn't like necessarily a intentional decision in that moment. When I'm, but when I'm looking back on that time, I'm like, well, he didn't treat you right. He lied. He was, he was a player. And you kept going back time and time again. Why? And my why became, uh, it was about desirability. Um, and it goes back to, you know, what, how I felt, how I have often felt about my skin tone. And these are things that you don't just get over uh, overnight. These are things that start really young, as we've expressed on, earlier in the show. And then it morphs into something else. And then you become an adult who has these ingrained um, standards uh, or these ingrained internal self shame um, that you don't you don't know what to do with it, which is why I always say therapy is really important because it's really important for us to be able to unpack all of this this trauma. And you know, now I'm able to move in my dating life and just in my life in general you know, loving the skin that I'm in. And it wasn't easy. You know, I think I, I, I watch often, I used to watch a lot of interviews of confident celebrities and like, how do you get your confidence? And something that always came up and, I, and Tiffany Haddish recently did an interview and said this, you look in the mirror and, you know, just, just tell yourself that you're beautiful. Tell yourself that you're attractive. Tell yourself that you're smart. Tell yourself that you're deserving of uh, that job with that good salary. You know, whatever your heart desires, uh, you deserve that. Um, and that's been really helpful for me to kind of overcome my insecurities around uh, my skin color or uh, my, my, my queerness. You know, being black and being queer often uh, in the past has been something that was like, you know, you can't be both. You know, white, being queer is for the white people. 
Um, even when I came out to my parents, my, my dad had basically said, you know, you can be a lot of things, but you can't be gay because the, the odds are stacked against you. Um, but essentially, he was, unfortunately, in that moment, he was teaching me to self-hate, which is anti-Black. Um, and I can be my full Black self, my full Black queer self, and I can be both feminine and masculine, and I can love all of those things about me. And I think that is really important for us as a community to figure out ways for us to dismantle the ways in which white supremacy it has such a grip on us as, as, as a society. Um, and the only way that we can undo that is by correcting it with self-love and not just self-love, but loving, actually loving each other and not uh, pitting one against the other. You know, not being a Nicki Minaj, uh, calling out another black woman on social media, calling us, uh, calling somebody an Uncle Tamiana. You know, that is anti-black. We have to speak love and everything that we do because for so many, for centuries, we've been told uh, that we are not even human, let alone deserving of joy and self-confidence. No? Precisely. Well, gee, this has been always a dope conversation. Uh, and as we talked about today, there's a lot, so much stacked against us, but our inherent beauty, our talent, our resilience is a birthright that ultimately cannot be stopped, no matter how hard some may try. So hold your head up so we can see you for all that you are. We want to remind our listeners to please support your local Black businesses and donate to your local organizations and religious institutions. The Black business that we will highlight this week is Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books. Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books was founded in the Germantown neighborhood of Philadelphia in 2017 by Mark Lamont Hill, who is a friend of the Grio. Uncle Bobby's was created as a space to provide underserved communities with access to books and a space where everyone feels valued. To learn more about how you can support or pick up some cool merch, head to www.unclebobbies.com. That's B-O-B-B-I-E-S.com. The Grio has published a list of 50 plus black businesses to support during the coronavirus pandemic. If you would like your business featured, email us at info at That's G-R-I-O dot com. Thank you for listening to Dear Culture. If you like what you heard, please give us a five star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. And please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments. We love those to podcast at thegrio.com. The Dear Culture podcast is brought to you by The Grio and executive produced by Blue Taluzma and co-produced by Taji Sr. and Abdul Kadus. 